Hello. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, life coach and psychotherapist, Nikki Eisenhower. And on today's episode, I'm excited to bring you a long-form interview with Casey McGuire-Davidson, a sober coach and host of the podcast, Hello Someday. I am very excited and grateful that Casey McGuire Davidson was willing to come on and share her story with me and with all of us. She's had a journey from red wine to sobriety, and she works with women as a sober coach. There's a lot that we discuss and cover. There's a lot that I share of my story, and I think you will feel and resonate with Casey's warmth, authenticity, and grounded approach to changing the relationship that we have with alcohol. Light and love and on to the show. I would wake up at 3 a.m. with just anxiety coursing through my body. I had no idea at the time it was connected to my drinking. I thought I had insomnia. I thought my job was stressful. I went to a therapist and, of course, gave her my standard line of like, oh, I drink a couple glasses of wine a couple nights a week and told her how much anxiety and insomnia I had. And she prescribed me anti-anxiety meds and Ambien. Not her fault. But I was then drinking a bottle of wine a night and taking an Ambien, which is so dangerous. Hi, Casey. Welcome. Hey, I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you again. I am so excited to have you here too. I'm excited to introduce you to my listeners and I'm excited that we share a podcast network. It's been lovely getting to know you more and more and more. Yeah, absolutely. So tell my listeners kind of what you do and then I want to get into your story about how you got all the way to doing what you do. Yeah. I mean, my name's Casey McGuire Davidson, and I am a life coach and a sobriety coach for busy women. I host a podcast called the Hello Someday podcast for sober, curious women. And I do one-on-one coaching. And I also have a sobriety coaching course that people can do privately at their own pace. And I've been, you know, working full time as a coach after 20 years in corporate uh, digital marketing for the last three years. Nice, nice. So tell me a little bit about your progression with drinking. Like what got you to the place of becoming a sober coach and getting sober yourself? Because it's such a journey, I think, for for so many people. And I, I think it's so valuable to go through how you go from being a drinker to a a non-drinker. I mean, that's quite the journey. Oh yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I think I started the way lots of people start drinking. I was, you know, actually not a drinker in high school, mostly because I went to a boarding school. Um, my parents lived overseas, so I was terrified of getting suspended from boarding school, which is what happened if you got caught drinking. But, you know, I would go away for some long weekends with friends and we would sneak the alcohol out of their parents' cabinet and and get drunk. 
And I went to college and for the first time I was like, oh, I can drink as much as I want wherever I want and won't get in trouble other than, you know, passing out (laughs) and a bad hangover. So um, I started, you know, going to the keg parties and absolutely loved it. I had always been kind of worried about what people thought or what I said, or if it was okay or making friends. And once I drank, I didn't feel that way anymore. It was like a party. Everyone was my best friend. I was happy. And so I loved drinking in college. I was like, this is what I've been missing. I joined the rugby team, the women's rugby team, I, which is basically a crash course in binge drinking. You know, it we had keg runs where we had a truck that we followed around running and when it stopped we drank. We had, you know, chugging parties with the other team at the end of every at the end of every game and you know drinking was really encouraged um almost required. You know, I think we had one person on our team who didn't drink and Yet I would drink, I would be super hungover, but I didn't drink every night. And I was still going to the library and getting, you know, Dean's List, Magna Cum Laude, all that stuff. I graduated college and had my first job. And it was sort of a really hard job. I had the full imposter syndrome. I worked as a management consultant. So I was like going to American Express and big telecom companies with my suit on that looked terrible looking back at the pictures, (laughs) right? I was like, oh my God, I'm playing dress up. And, you know, 22 years old walking into their conference rooms. And so I would come home at night and be super anxious and stressed and living on my own and, you know, open the wine every single night and think I was all adult and sophisticated, even though I had no idea how to cook. Because like I had gone to boarding school and then, you know, the gone to college and we ate in the dining hall. So I would literally like make lucky charms and drink wine or, you know, like mac and cheese. So I started drinking most nights. It was kind of like what I thought adults did. That's the point that is really solidifying yeah. for me is I, I think that's such a problem in our American culture. I'm in my 40s. Definitely when I was hitting college, maybe it's changing now, maybe not, depending on kind of where you are in the world. But I don't think we're doing a good enough job teaching people what adulting is going to be, what it is. So I definitely stumbled into drinking in such a way. And that's what I thought adulting was, was managing life with alcohol. And that's to hear both of us sort of acknowledge that and say that out loud for our culture, that that's how we launch into our adultness, thinking that that's what adulting is. That's really sad at the end of the day. When it doesn't surprise me at all, because when you think about it, we've been conditioned since childhood, you know, even with, hey, when you turn 21, you can drink. Mm -hmm. Just this idea that drinking is a privilege of adulthood you know, you get allowed to do it when you turn 21. And in every advertisement, in every marketing piece, in our own social media, 
we are shown that it is fun and sophisticated and sexy and romantic mm-hmm. and really required. So, you know, when people say, oh my God, I got pulled in this hole of drinking every night. I'm like, of course you did. You know, you, you know, anyone who drinks often enough because the substance is addictive is going to start becoming habitually, emotionally, physically dependent on it. And in our society, it is really, really easy to drink a lot. It is. It's accessible. It's cheap. It's easy. It's fast. I mean, it's that's part of the tragedy of it is how easy it is to just slide right in to that as a lifestyle. Okay. So you had that sort of big grown up job. I resonate with that too. Like getting <laughs> dressed up professionally when you're yes. fresh out of college, it really feels like dress up. It does. So no wonder you had the imposter syndrome that I think so many of us yeah. experience. So you were starting to cope. I was starting to cope. And um, I also, you know, wanted to have fun. I wanted to, you know, I was in my early 20s in Washington, D.C. And so we went out to bars um, a lot. That's what we did. And, you know, once you're a quote unquote an adult, whenever you sit down in a restaurant, the very first thing they bring you is the drinks menu. Mm-hmm. Like there is almost never non-alcoholic beverages on there. It is wine and beer. The first thing someone asks you when they come over is, what would you like to drink? And they talk about their alcoholic beverages. So it seemed completely normal. And that's just what I did. And I sort of always evolved what I was drinking, sort of aligned with the time in my life. So in college, it was kegs, keg parties, beer, whatever didn't have a lot of money. You know, there were a lot of keg parties. When I was in my 20s, it was going out to bars. So lots of cocktails, you know, we were dancing, we were having fun. When I moved to Seattle from Washington, DC with my boyfriend, now husband, we lived together and it started being wine, like a lot of dinner parties with wine, with all of our friends, you know, except when we went camping, then it would be beer. Like it was like by activity, but I kind of drank every night. You know, when I was growing up, my parents would always have a bottle of wine on the table at dinner. They didn't drink like I did. Nobody in my family drank like I did. Like I just didn't have an off switch. So I would drink until it kind of ran out, the night was over, or, you know, I would pass out. I occasionally didn't. I tried to, quote unquote, be good. I would be like, oh my God, I've got work tomorrow. And I would, you know, only drink two glasses of wine a night, which was always my goal for a while. But eventually I would kind of say, oh, screw it. It's a Friday night. It's a hard day. It's a good day. I'm just going to, you know, drink more, have a third glass and then a fourth glass. And then you might as well finish the bottle because there's embarrassingly little there and you don't want to see it in the morning. You know, Mm -hmm. how long did you kind of drink like that? I mean, honestly, probably from the time that I graduated college and lived on my own, You know, I I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, when I was a sophomore in college, this is totally embarrassing. My roommate and I would have like 
I'd do work all day and then I'd go running. And then for some reason, we had like blush rosé in a box in our fridge and we would have a glass of wine while watching like crap talk shows before we went to dinner. Like, so it even became then as like, oh, we'll just have a little bit of a party in our room before we go to the dining hall at 7 p.m. But I think when you're a drinker, you surround yourself with other drinkers. It's at first something you do when you go out and then it just becomes part of the way you relax, have fun, signify the end of the day. When I moved to Seattle, you know, I also drank every night, um, probably not as much. I was 25 as I ended up, I quit when I was 40, I stopped drinking, but I was always sort of an, an everyday drinker, you know, come home with dinner, open a bottle of wine. I was a red wine girl. That was like my jam. And so sometimes when I'd make the rules, I'd like switch to other kinds of alcohol because I didn't love it as much. So like, I loved red wine, so I drink white wine, or I loved red wine, so I drink beer or even hard alcohol because I didn't like it. But I'd eventually come back to my first love. And over time, I was pretty much drinking a bottle of wine a night, seven nights a week, 365 nights a year, unless I was trying to cut back or be good or take a break, which happened, you know at least every couple months, because I, I honestly was worried about my drinking. I would wake up at 3 a.m. with just anxiety coursing through my body. I had no idea at the time it was connected to my drinking. I thought I had insomnia. I thought my job was stressful. This was back when I was like 28, before I had kids. Mm-hmm. I went to a therapist and of course gave her my standard line of like, oh, I drink a couple glasses of wine a couple nights a week and told her how much anxiety and insomnia I had. And she prescribed me anti-anxiety meds and ambient. Not her fault, but I was then drinking a bottle of wine a night and taking an ambient, which is so dangerous. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps having you admit that because that is so often the case. It is so normalized, like not just with sleeping pills, antidepressants. Yes. I'm a therapist. And the amount of people who think it's totally okay to be on antidepressants while drinking a depressant. Yes. It's terrifying. And the combination of alcohol and benzos can kill you. It really can. can. Absolutely kill you. And coming off of heroin cannot kill you. You can feel like you're going to die, but it will not kill you. But coming off of alcohol by itself, you can have a stroke and you can die. And so that's part of what is so crazy in our culture, I think. Yeah. Is that it's so normalized to have alcohol around everything. And yet we don't know these basics. I can say the same. I I had the shakes as a bartender from drinking and I had no idea, no idea that it was alcohol related. No, I was like, wow, these are really bad hangovers. Like, and not connecting like what that meant during my bartending days. And it also is the thing that nobody talks about. And I do think it's starting to change, but there forever is this stigma around struggling with alcohol, which is crazy because it is the most abused substance Mm -hmm. in the United States around the world there, you know, you don't want to be quote unquote, the person like it's been set up. And I think very reinforced by big alcohol that either 
you are a quote unquote alcoholic and you Mm -hmm. cannot drink. And there is a lot of stigma attached to that anyway. But as a mother, as a woman, there's extra stigma or there's nothing to see here. You know, quote unquote, drink responsibly. If you go overboard, that's kind of on you. And, you know, just kind of get it under control. I mean, the marketing campaign is literally drink responsibly. And the warnings, which are so tiny, are don't drink and drive and don't drink if you're pregnant. Regardless of the fact that alcohol is a known carcinogen that dramatically increases your risk of seven different types of cancer, including the fancy wines. Like you're also like, well, I only drink wine and it's good for my heart. I mean, I was holding on to that tight and it's really scary. I mean, these stats during the pandemic are incredible. I mean, women were already drinking more and more for the last 20 years. But during the pandemic, there was a 40% increase among women's binge drinking. And among parents of kids under the age of five, the increase was 323%. And if you think that doesn't have an impact on health, that it's just habitual and problematic, typically year over year, there's an increase in the death rate attached to alcohol by about 2 to 3%. During 2020 to 2021, the jump was 25%. Yikes. It's the third leading cause of death and not just for the um, typical portrayed in TV and movies, quote unquote, low bottom alcoholic. These are women who are Gen X, millennial, baby boomers, high income women Mm -hmm. are the biggest drinkers. I mean- It is women with my profile, high-powered career, wife, mom to two kids, beautiful house, high-achieving, and really physically and mentally suffering from alcohol, which can be deadly. Those are wild statistics. I I know I've got a special license in addiction, and I've been doing this since 2005 or six. I have never helped more people deal with death from addiction, particularly alcohol. Yeah. And in the past year, it's unbelievable hearing people dying in their forties from drinking themselves to death. And this is a substance that is so normalized and that we really don't talk about. I mean, that's why we are here together talking about it. So what moved you? Mm Mm-hmm. To making the decision, because when it is so black and white like that, like, oh, it's fine, drink responsibly, you're good, or you are an alcoholic, like, dun, 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 like, you know, like the doom music behind it. How do you kind of cross over when that's kind of the setup in our society that you're one or the other, that we don't really talk about this? I I hope you and I are part of the change, Jill, too, from Sober Powered, talking more and more about there's so much gray area. There's yes, so much gray area. You don't need that label. When literally it's called gray area drinking now, there's a huge sober curious movement. There's a huge category of people who mm-hmm. fall into this gray area drinking spectrum. And, you know, as you know, and you can probably tell me better than I know, there is no medical term of alcoholic. Mm-hmm. It's called alcohol use disorder on a spectrum 
mild, moderate, severe. So even that term is antiquated. And of course, it's used within a 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that is not a requirement for either struggling with drinking or deciding to stop. You are not required to identify as an alcoholic, nor is it necessary. And yet that's the bridge that is one too far that holds so many people back Mm -hmm. from stopping. Yeah, it's a a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Like I wouldn't say that I am sober, but I have maybe one drink a year. I might have a sip. Like, and yeah, there was such a time in my life where that didn't seem possible for me or likely. So I very much struggled getting that education that that is so black and white and mm-hmm. not in the gray. And it is going to take for my profession, it's going to take probably 10, if not 20 years to actually have that newer information actually trickle down into yeah. the training. And yeah. part of why it's so black and white is because addiction recovery is really big business. Oh, yeah. Really big business. And so they want those hardline categories of, yes, you are definitely this thing and you, you need treatment or you're going to die. And, yeah. and that's how they kind of get you into treatment that costs 10, 20, $30,000 a month. That is oh my huge that's- business. And so if you go for an evaluation, that's part of the problem, in my opinion. People are scared to even get an evaluation because we don't have enough of the conversation of, hey, I think you're in this gray area yeah. and it may not be a massive problem right now or today, but you're struggling with it. And yeah. what if we minimize that struggle for you? What if we worked yeah. on that? What if we did some harm reduction? And b- when we talk about stigma, my goodness, the stigma of having to think of yourself as an alcoholic or oh, not, God. who wants to cross over? Yeah, nobody. That? And I think I- once we sober up more, it's easier yeah. to play around with those words. But when you're really in the thick of it, those are so off-putting and, it, and yeah. it, it's such a block to people really yeah. getting the information that they need to empower their own lives and just feel better in this one yeah. precious life. Well, here's what I think is interesting and some might find it funny, but I am literally a sobriety coach who has not had a drink in seven years and tell people openly that I drank a bottle of wine or sometimes more seven nights a week would quote unquote, fall asleep on the couch slash pass out. And sometimes wouldn't remember shows I watched in the morning. I do not call myself or even consider myself an alcoholic because it doesn't help me. It's totally unnecessary. And if I was to be like, am I an alcoholic? I would probably debate it back and forth and back and forth in every argument on every side. And I also don't want that label. So literally, I say to people, I used to drink a lot. I quit. I feel better. And I'm not, I think I'm done drinking because it's addictive. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. full stop. That's, and that's my truth. Um, I think that's right. I, I really like from, from all of my experience, you know, as much as things aren't right or wrong, I can say like, I, I believe that that is right. Yeah. I grew up in my career watching them fight to make addiction a disease. And what I believe in every fiber of my being is that I fell into the rhetoric of that 
of this is good for people and their insurance will pay for it. And and this takes away the shame of it. And I really bought into all of that. At this point in my career, I think that's total bullshit. I think it's, it's a complete model. The medical community cannot give you medications unless you have a sickness. That's their ethics. And so what I saw in addiction treatment when people came in is once you had that severe alcohol dependency problem, once you had an alcoholic diagnosis, whatever the spectrum is, then you were wide open for a doctor to medicate you in other ways. And without that label, it's absolutely considered by their own ethics, unethical for them to medicate. So from my perspective, watching how big pharma has unfolded over the course of my career, I am in the camp, which is very controversial of, no, I don't believe addiction is a disease. I think addiction is human. And mm-hmm. it's something that we need to understand for everything, for television, for salty things, for sweet things. I mean, for money spending, yeah, you know, for distracting ourselves, for being present in life versus wanting to escape. Yeah. This is really a human issue that we need to understand. Yeah. I mean, people can even get addicted to dyeing their hair so much that it falls out of their head, you know? Yeah. So like we really need, I think, to change the conversation around addiction, around alcoholism, around what the struggle is. Yeah. And if we're putting things into our bodies, into our awareness that aren't good for us, it is right for us to dial that down. Yeah. No matter what it is, it's just right. And there's there's no other argument that I can entertain that makes sense yeah. to me other than that one. Well, and I think that's true. And the other thing of the disease model, it perpetuates this idea that alcohol for 90% of the population is fine and not harmful at all. And you personally have a medical or with AA, a moral deficiency mm-hmm. that causes you to have, quote unquote, lost your privileges, right? You are less than, you have a disease. Everyone else is fine unless they fall into that category. And the truth is that alcohol as a substance is highly, highly, highly addictive in the same way that cigarettes are, right? Mm-hmm. Like nobody's like, Oh, you know, if you're like, I used to be a pack a day smoker, you don't start out like that. And quitting is really hard. And once you quit smoking, everybody's like, good for you. That shit will give you cancer. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? That's horrible, you know, versus you decide to not drink. And I think of it as a health choice in Mm -hmm. the same way that deciding to become a vegetarian or a vegan is. You're like, you You know what? I'm no longer going to drink alcohol. And everybody's like, did you have a problem? Why not? What about one? Don't be too hard on yourself. You're being a little extreme. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think that that's just a projection of people's own discomfort because you hold up such a strong mirror. Yeah. When you show up to that party that starts with, what do you want to drink? And you sit down at the restaurant. What will you be drinking today from the drinking menu that I handed you without asking you if you wanted an alcoholic beverage or not first? It's it's so in everything that when you show up going, I'm going to be a little different than what the culture expects out of me in this moment, people get truly, truly uncomfortable because they see themselves and they see that 
they're not evaluating their own relationship with this toxic substance. I mean, the thing about alcohol is that it has a toxic effect on every organ of our body. Yeah. Everything. Ladies, our skin. Oh my God. Not How much money do we write? The best anti-aging. Yes. Forget about Botox. Like just stop drinking. And people are going to be like, oh my God, what are you doing? You look yes. amazing. Like JLo doesn't drink mm-hmm. at all. She's like, you know what? That That is bad for your looks. Yes. And so all this other money that we pour into our lives, even the anti-aging stuff, like Please. the creams and all the stuff as, as women and alcohol is definitely dehydrating, adding wrinkles, like all these things. Mm-hmm. So even just that, like, I won't lie about it. I'm vain. Like I know oh, this vain. about myself. I want to look as good as I can possibly look as naturally as I can. And yeah. that was a big motivator for me with the alcohol. I could yeah. see it in women that drank too much. Oh, and I, yeah. I didn't want that look. And, you know, yeah. And especially if you age, it's, it's really tough on your body and your looks. Like it will age you 10 years Yep. in terms of how you look if you drink, you know, on a regular basis. And by the way, so many women drink a bottle of wine a night. So mm-hmm. many women may not drink a bottle, but they drink two or three glasses, you know, four times a week. All of that is incredibly bad for your body. It's bad for your looks. It's bad for cancer, you know, increasing your odds of having cancer. Mm -hmm. And when you ask like, what made me make that shift? The critical thing was I like literally quitting drinking was my worst case scenario in life. Like I did not want to stop drinking. I wanted to feel better. I wanted to not drink so much. I wanted the hangovers and the anxiety to go away. But I loved drinking. I loved the effect. I loved holding the glass. I loved the taste. I loved how it looked. And so when I talk to women who drink too much, I always say like, I know you don't want to stop drinking. You want to feel better and you have to trust me that by not drinking, you're going to feel better. And drinking alcohol is like a magnet. So the closer you are to when you were drinking, the stronger the pull it will have on you. So as you get further away, as your dopamine levels reset, as your skin looks better, as you get out of that withdrawal and you sleep well, you will look back and be like, I can't believe I lived that way for so long. I don't want to go back to feeling that way. But when you're in the drinking cycle, you're in the craving cycle. And you physically do feel better when you drink because you're in withdrawal from the substance. Mm -hmm. So when I, you know, talk to women about stopping drinking. So I'm a sober coach right now. and, And I became one because I worked with a sober coach. Um, I had tried to read all the books about quitting drinking. I tried all the challenges. I had tried, you know, let me do this diet because I won't drink on it. I tried the, I'm going to sign up for 5 a.m. boot camp so I won't drink the night before or like joining a running club at, that started from 7 to 8.30 at night so I wouldn't drink. Like, trust me, if there was a strategy to somehow manage my alcohol intake, I've tried it. Well, but, and I want to point out that that what you're showing 
our audience right now is what I call like the games we play. Yeah. And if you're playing that game with yourself about anything, about TV, about sugar, about food, about alcohol, about even the pills your doctor's giving you, whatever you're playing that game with, you wouldn't be playing that game if it wasn't already problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Like we just like with Jill, I said one day, yeah, we don't wonder if we're a frog. No. Like it's something that I used to say in addiction treatment groups. It's like, you don't wonder if you're a frog. So if you're wondering like, oh, oh, how can I do this? I'm wondering, should I do this? Is this more or less? How do I do this? Okay. I won't do red wine. I'll do white wine. All that playing chess with how to keep a substance in your life is the sign that you need. You don't need any other sign other than that. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is when you think about early prevention, right? Early intervention. When you go to the doctor, they do all these screenings on, they do your blood pressure, right? Mm -hmm. They take your pulse, they screen for diabetes, all this stuff. What we want to do is get you to evaluate your alcohol intake, or what I'd like to do is to work with women who are drinking too much, have tried to moderate it, and haven't been able to do it. And to work with them on having an experiment, right? I not trying to drink two glasses a night, two nights a week, because that doesn't work. You're still in the withdrawal cycle. But I like to work with women to set a joint goal of a hundred days continuously alcohol free, because that is uh, short enough. Even if it feels impossible to you, it's three months. Like, you know what the next season spring of your life is going to look like when you're drinking. You know the highs and you know the lows. You don't know from three months from now how amazing you could feel, how much progress you would make in your life, um, what different activities and habits you would take up, how much better you would be at work or with your kids or have more patience if you don't drink. And if you're like me, who's been drinking for 20 years, aren't you curious enough to see if you remove this substance from your life, what it, what'll happen, you know? And if you don't kind of do that now, then you're only left with thinking those thoughts a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I even think about like, I moved to the country recently and I've always been a city girl. And one of my friends who's 20 years older than me is in his mid sixties. He said, Nikki, I really regret it. I've only ever lived in the city in my whole life. I've never given myself a chance to feel what that is like. Yeah. And about so many things. I think that is a, a wisdom we can just carry that you do get this one precious life. And if you don't let yourself experience things differently, how do you ever experience anything differently? Yeah. And really learn about who you are and what might be awesome for you in ways that you've just never sampled before. Yeah. I know. I like women to get curious and excited about their potential without drinking. And as we grow up, right, as we become adults, which let's face it, is fun and kind of hard and monotonous and difficult and, you know, um, you know, before I had kids, especially, I had all these hobbies. I worked, but my husband and I went kayaking on the weekends. I took guitar lessons. I went to Pilates. I met my friends for picnics. You know, I did a lot of things. Once I had my son, I went to work 
and rushed out at the end of the day to try to make it before 6 p.m. for daycare pickup and then bring him home. And, you know, young kids, they're really draining and they take all of your energy. Mm -hmm. And then when you finally get them down, your house is destroyed and then you have to do it all over the next day. And that's if you're not waking up in the middle of the night. So your universe of rewards shrinks yeah. and wine or beer or drinking you can multitask when you're drinking, right? You can, I mean, for me, talking for me, I could build Legos with a glass of wine on the table. I could play Candyland. I could cook dinner. I could do the dishes. And the other thing I want to tell people just as you're picturing this, no one ever told me that they were worried about my drinking. I mean, they knew I drank a lot. They knew, you know, my husband knew I drank a lot. He knew I loved it. He knew that like when we went out, it was unspoken that he would drive home, you know, unless I was like on my kick of not drinking. I never had a DUI. I never, you know, couldn't perform at work. I never got drunk during the day unless I was going out for mimosas with my girlfriends. You know, I mean, we have all these categories of when drinking at what time of day is Mm -hmm. is appropriate. But I was not the person that people were intervening with. Um, And yet I was kind of moving through life with this ball and chain tied to my ankle as I was trying to run this high achieving marathon. Um, And it was just, I was making life so much harder on myself than it needed to be. Yeah. Bam. Like that is it. I mean, I I think that's, that's the sneaky downside of alcohol that our society doesn't seem to want to acknowledge. Yeah. And by the way, it's also, I mean, the reason we don't want to acknowledge it is because there is a ton of money behind the alcohol industry that are lobbying our you know, lawmakers in Congress and spending a ton of money on advertising to suppress the conversation that the substance is addictive, that it's the third leading cause of death for adults, and that um, it causes all of these diseases. And by the way, it isn't a tiny portion of the population that struggles with it. They literally are trying to get on wine bottles and all alcohol, a warning about the cancer risks. And lawmakers and lobbyists have been fighting that for years and years and years, including that the American Cancer Association just put a year and a half ago that no amount of alcohol is safe in terms of cancer risk. Like before that, they were doing the one glass a day for women, two for men, which was blatantly untrue. And proved untrue for years and years. So, I mean, when you look at cigarettes, because I was in the airport the other day in the duty-free section and they sell these huge cartons, um, there are labels literally all over it, like smoking kills, smoking causes cancer. I took a picture of it. But with alcohol, if you look at wine bottles, it is the tiniest, smallest warning Mm -hmm. on the back under all the ingredients that says basically like drink responsibly and don't drink if you're pregnant and don't drive like in, you know, five point font. Yep. Tons of money, tons of money. And 
I think big pharma plays into that because if we're all unhealthy, they benefit. Yeah. And so it being just a, a cultural norm in our society um, is frightening. You know that I work a lot with inner child and this idea of an inner adolescent. I think part of what makes that doubly and triply more difficult for us to manage as adult human beings is our introduction yes. into that alcohol really is our adolescent self. I mean, maybe coming from New Orleans, I started going to bars at 16 and really had no idea that that wasn't everybody's normal experience. I mean, I was a regular at a bar at 16 that would sell $10 pitchers, not just of beer, of alcohol. I would walk yeah. around a bar at 16 holding my own pitcher with a straw. That's amazing. Of Tom Collins. Yeah. That's out of control. That yeah. is out of control. And so what I understand now that I didn't understand when I was going through it is that when I was trying to change my relationship with alcohol, my inner adolescent would show up inside of me and basically say and feel the feelings of, but wait, I don't really know how to be an adult without this. Yeah. What what does that mean? How are we going to go to a sports thing? How are we going to go to do a party? What are, How are we going to deal with the fact that people are going to look at us like we're the weirdos? Mm-hmm. And so I think it takes a lot of understanding how to mature that part up to help ourselves get to the benefit of that hundred days and understand that that inner adolescent, maybe even our inner child, depending on when we started drinking, maybe thrashing, maybe like telling us in our psychology, you better do this thing. This is the thing that actually even makes me an adult. This makes me feel like a competent adult. Yeah. And that I think is what we have to address at some point in the journey to be able to really Hold on to what we deserve, which is a life without that haze. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And a lot of the work that I do with women is from a behavior and and habit change model Mm -hmm. where we're really looking at the alcohol, you know, cravings as you get a cue, Mm -hmm. which triggers a craving which triggers a response to drink, Mm -hmm. which triggers the reward, which is alcohol hitting your body and your brain. And it's both a depressant and a stimulus. There is a very real impact from taking that drug. Um, The cue can be 5 p.m., 6 p.m. The cue can be seeing a girlfriend. The cue can be date night. The cue can be hard day at work. It can be, you know, driving past the grocery store, anything at all. We're so habitually trained to pick up a bottle of wine. And so what we work on is like habit change. What are your limiting beliefs about life without alcohol? Mm -hmm. What are um, the times that you drank? What are the triggers that make you want to drink, which are both negative and positive, you know, celebrations, weekend away, Friday night, um, and also neutral being bored, having additional time on your hands, right? Like boredom is the biggest trigger. It is the biggest trigger when it's studied is boredom. And I I think that's a shock to a lot of people because we think, well, sadness would be or being upset or having a really stressful day. And that logically makes sense, but really it's boredom. And we're not used to being with ourselves. And I think that's part of why addiction is going up. And struggle with substances is going up because the internet 
in the last 20 years has filled that for us. It's basically said, oh, you never have to be bored. (laughs) Scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. So I think we're having much less, many less moments that we string together of actually just being bored. And we can even see it in how parents are parenting their children. Yeah. We're we're in an age where parents are keeping their children so busy with so many activities as if boredom is some kind of punishment or yeah. some kind of big awful terrible. In fact, letting your children experience boredom and learn yeah. what to do with that at a time in their life where they can't pick up a beer because they're bored is a great strengthener. Yeah. Against developing addiction later and we're not talking about that at all. Yeah. And when you take a, you know, what I try to work with women on a couple of things. One is for, I'm like, you are not a 16 year old who has lost your privileges to the family car. Like you are a grown ass adult who is making a health choice and an experiment to finally actually take care of yourself, like to identify your emotions. Am I resentful? And am I angry? Do I want to heighten this experience? Do I feel like all I do is work? at home and at the Mm -hmm. job, you know, what do I need? Because alcohol, I think of, you know, we're moms like a pacifier that you give your baby because you don't want it to cry, right? Like the baby needs something and you like stick it in their mouth and are like, dude, I can't deal, you know? Oh, that's a great idea that people will hate, but will be so healthy for them. (laughs) But like, because it is, it's like a grown up putting a pacifier in their mouth. Yeah. And there's even this, this like meme that I hate. That's like the men's guide to women from like what to save. That's like most dangerous, kind of dangerous, neutral, you know, safe, safer. So it, you know, the most dangerous is like shit. Like, um, would you do all day? When they come home, right? Like that is not, you know, a great thing to say, or like you're wearing that, you know, like, of course that's stupid. I think this meme is stupid and condescending and paternalistic, but the safest thing to say, according to this meme in every category is here, have some wine. Oh, geez. Because it's the pacifier. It's the pacifier. It's like, I need... I support, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I've been minimized at work, my boss is a jerk, I'm overwhelmed, I'm bored, I can't spend this many hours with my kids, I need, you know, to think, and it's like, here, have some wine, stick the pacifier in and shut up, and we do it to ourselves, too. Wow, I've never heard that one before, that one really gets at it. Yeah. I can look back and admit that, yeah, that's exactly how I drink. Like, yeah, I deserve this pacifier right now. Like, yeah, yep. And I will do I it to myself. It. Yes. You know, it is yes. all I have for myself. You know, like those thoughts. I can't take an afternoon away. I can't go to a yoga retreat. I can't stop working after the kids go to bed. But I have this one, you know? So I wonder how much this plays into people making the choices to stay stressed. Yeah. To have permission to keep drinking. Well, it's like this vicious cycle and cash uh, catch 22 in all these ways. So you drink, you don't sleep well, your nervous system is shot. You feel stress. You're operating on half capacity. There is brain fog, right? So you get less done. You 
are having such a hard time making sure you keep everything straight because you're literally turning your brain off for X number of hours every night and then recovering for it. So, you know, you feel anxious and stressed because you're drinking. When you stop drinking, you need extra time alone. You need to lower the bar. You need to decompress because you're recovering from it. You will soon have more energy and more optimism than you've experienced in years. But in the beginning, you sort of have to slow down to spring forward. So then they're, they've set up, and I speak for myself, I set up a life that I felt like I needed to drink to tolerate because I didn't have anything for myself. And, you know, when I stopped drinking, I needed to slow down and tell my husband, like, I need more help. I can't do all this. Let's get takeout. Um, you take care of the kids for two hours on Saturday so I can just like go to the gym and sit in the hot tub. I hired babysitters, which by the way, you spend a ton of money drinking, right? Yes. You can hire a babysitter. But I also like started going to therapy every Tuesday night and it was awkward with my husband. He's like, wait, I have to pick up both kids and get them dinner like every Tuesday night. And I was just like, yes, until 7.30. And I do that every effing night in the spring when you're a baseball coach. Like, are you kidding me? And he was sort of like, and he's a great guy, but like, how long are this going to happen? But like, that's a renegotiation of your relationship and responsibilities that have been set up in a way that you are self-medicating with alcohol to get through it. Very often I find that women in particular have this idea that they're not allowed to change their mind or renegotiate things. Like, this is just the way that it is. I set it up this way. Yeah, that's right. I should just eat it. And women, I mean, this is part of why women have, I don't know what the statistic is, but I know that one of the major health struggles we have is heart disease. We have heart attacks. I have women in their fifties that with pacemakers. And nobody thinks about that. We all think about it with the overweight man, right? Mm -hmm. Not women. Yep. And so, so many women, and, and there's a lot of research that has come in the last few years, basically saying, um, over the last few decades as women, we have started really working like men used to work. And so now we're drinking like men. Yes. And, and our bodies really are not equipped to handle it as much as theirs are. And yeah. you can hear that as some kind of like gender struggle or like get mad at that, but there are real differences between the male body and the female body. And this is one of them. Yeah. This is we one of them. Metabolize alcohol differently. So I am a woman who decided not to have kids out of, and anybody who knew me as a young person expected me to have about six kids. Okay. I was like a mother goose as a kid and I, I'm great with kids. And I always thought I'd have kids. And then I made the decision not to. And one of the reasons why I didn't is because I really sat down with myself and decided that Maybe I could do it all, but I didn't want to. Yeah. I did, did not want to do it all. And I have this career and it's a healing career. It connects me with helping other women raise yeah. kids and and give advice that way. And I, and I let go of that. Can I ask you, do you think a lot of your drinking is out of that place of like, were you trying to like be the superwoman, like do it all kind of person? And how much do you think that plays in to these dynamics? For a lot of women, their drinking takes off after 
they have kids. Like maybe they are moderating or they like to drink or whatever leading up to having kids. Now, I raised my hand and said, I always love to drink, right? But I I had a lot of things in my life that I did other than drinking before I had my son. Which is a bit unusual mm-hmm. because typically people who drink a whole lot, it's like that is their hobby. And I mean, I was doing triathlons. I was playing guitar. I I mean, to be fair, I was very stressed at work. My husband was like, oh my God, the entire service industry of Seattle is taking care of you, which is not completely true. Okay. But once I had my son, a lot of that went out the window. You know what I mean? Like it was so just- the things that are yours. Yeah. Like that, that real having a child is a sacrifice of, oh, of yeah. your time and your energy. And there, and it you is, can play semantics with that all you want, but at I the end of the day, that's it. what it is. It is unsatisfying a lot of the time. And you can argue with me about that. Like women are going to get mad at me. Like I adore my kids, but when they are very young, when they are babies, it is so much like, what have you done for me lately? I'm like, oh my God, I'm home for four months, three months. I have done nothing but take care of you constantly. Like I'm physically depleted. I look like crap. I haven't had a (laughs) workout in ages. My boobs are bleeding. I got hives because I had mastitis and took this medicine. And you're screaming at me. Like you are inconsolably screaming at me. And it it causes a lot of tension in a marriage, so much tension because, you know, you used to be this independent person who decided when you were going to go out to dinner and whatever and have fun. And suddenly if he wants to do something, he has to ask permission from me essentially to go out. And I have to ask permission from him because someone has to take care of the baby to like go to get a cup of coffee or um, see a friend or go to the gym. Like he used to be like, well, you got to go to the gym this morning. And I'm like, seriously, that is my reward, like an hour at a gym. And it was, you know, for the entire weekend. Um, So it definitely takes off uh, a lot of times when women stop us, have kids. And not only that, but women don't want to talk about how difficult it is. And the only time we really talk about that is when we get together and drink. And so this mom wine culture of like you did, I mean, you can go to Trader Joe's in August and September, and they have a huge sign that says back to school supplies and underneath are just cases and cases and cases Mm -hmm. of rosé wine. And, you know, People always give wine to teachers, right? Oh, thanks for, you know, you could yep. probably use a drink. Women get together with playdates with their kids, or I should speak for myself again. I did with all my girlfriends, with my 18 month old, and we would open up the wine. That's like how we bonded, how we had fun. Again, you can multitask. Oh, I'm from Louisiana. I have been to one-year-old birthday parties that had kegs. Oh my God. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a yes. party. Uh You're getting together. And it's also this like rebellion against your responsibilities. It's sort of your signal that like, yes, I'm a mom, but don't worry, I'm still fun, you know? And it's a way to, I think, escape the stressors. Oh, yeah. I can't count the number of women that have broken down with me over the years and cried 
and, and basically said, like, I, I really don't like my kids at this age. Yeah. And I've had to normalize and go, of course you don't, because functionally, you know, children are basically little narcissists for they the sake are. of survival. Oh That's why a baby doesn't care if you're tired. And rightly so. I mean, we hope that they grow out of it and develop an empathy for other people. That's what we're going for when we're raising kids. But that's essentially what they are. And that's about survival. That's about the human condition. That's about, I'm going to scream until you feed me and tend to me. And that's how babies functionally survive. And so that is stressful to basically be saddled to one, two, or three, or four little narcissists and you are their life force. Yeah. And go out and work a full-time job. That, and I mean, you're supposed to never say anything negative about it. Yes. You know? You're only supposed to say how precious and wonderful and how much of a gift that it is. Yeah. And that becomes, I think, a way a woman kind of gaslights herself. Oh, yeah. And by the way, like if you say it, you judge yourself. If you think it, you judge yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you never tell people how much you're struggling with this, you never get support. You know? Yeah. And, and I, I think it's the hardest job in the world, particularly modern parenting, right? So many women who look perfect, who are always smiling and who are drinking themselves to like oblivion the night before and then getting up and overcompensating yeah. because they're like, oh my God, I can't rest because this is my fault that I'm this tired. Then you want a parenting out of guilt. Yeah. And that's not good for kids either. And so the, the, I cannot stress enough that the butterfly effects of having like a real alcohol lifestyle are astronomical. They really are for you, for your families, for your kids, for your for every single thing that you interact with and mm-hmm. that you want for your life. And that may sound like, I don't know, an overreaction or like I'm being dramatic, but out of all the substances that are out there, yeah, I do think alcohol is the worst in this way because it affects so much and is so normalized. Yeah. And I would just say, like, if you're listening to this, I promise you, I am not judging you. Like, trust me, I was the biggest proponent of mommy wine culture. I love to drink. I I stopped drinking and I am shocked how much less my friends and my husband drink because apparently I was the instigator for like... (laughs) All the like, let's keep going. This is the best time ever. Open another bottle before you leave. So I am not judging you at all, but I'm saying you have no idea. And I'm sure you don't believe me, but try it. How much happier you will be when you get out of that drinking cycle, because you're going to be calmer. You're going to be happier, like your base level of dopamine, the happy hormone is going to be raised because it it naturally suppresses itself when you're drinking. You're going to have more energy, be more efficient, look better without even changing anything else. And, you know, when I stopped drinking, I, you know, I kind of was like, oh, my husband's going to be bored. Like he's going to be bored with me. I'm less fun. And I would come home from work and once I was at like 30 days, I was like, what have you noticed by the way? And he was like, I'm just, our whole house is more peaceful. Like you're less high and less low. It's just even, but it feels good. And I was like, oh, I thought he would be bored. And instead he's like, oh my God, I feel peace. 
I wish we had more of a conversation that, you know, we, we have such a conversation about find your purpose, find your purpose, find your purpose. I think if, if we taught more from a younger age and talked more about when you make peace, your, your purpose, you will find all the other things that you, that you want out of life. Things fall into place. I think for me growing up with a lot of dysfunction, I didn't realize how scared I was of peace because I was used to chaos. I was used to the struggle. I was used to waking up hungover. I was used to scrambling to make things work. And that's its own kind of high and adrenaline rush. And when you've lived like through adrenaline that way, I think very often with very little way to articulate or express this, we can be subconsciously scared of having peace. You just named the reason. We are really scared of boredom. We're scared of being boring. We're scared of boring the other person. We're scared of not having that kind of party and cut loose. But the peace is so powerful. I mean, peace is most definitely my purpose. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I found, because I work with a lot of working moms, a lot of high achieving women, is we have trouble saying no. We have trouble with boundaries. We're Mm -hmm. people pleasers and overachievers, right? Like what has to be done and I can do it faster and better than anyone else. And if you're working and you're a mom, it's that idea that you're never doing quite enough. And so we also feel like if stuff isn't getting done, we can't stop because we need to be productive. We have too much on our list. We have to be productive at all times. So The women I work with are going, 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 totally overwhelmed by everything on their list, trying to keep up. And when they come home or when they have a moment, they want to downshift really fast too. They're like, oh my God, I probably need, you know, a half hour of meditation and to take a bath and to do X, Y, Z, but I have limited time. So let me take this substance that immediately shuts down my mind Mm -hmm. and spikes my dopamine. And that combo, it's because we don't have enough time to actually take care of ourselves, to decompress throughout the day. So we don't get to the point where we're strung so thin that we're like, oh my God, I want to shut down right now. I want to add to that, that most of us are not getting enough physical activity either. And so when you're not tired, you know, like we used to like plow the fields, right? Like when we were tired at night after plowing a field, like you sleep, right? You drop like a rock. When we are so heady, especially as women, you know, like we're more verbal, like we think and think and think high achiever, um, high integrity about doing a good job, right? Perfectionism, all of that is the fodder of the overthinker, right? And so that alcohol, I think, immediately quiets that for so many people. And without that physical exertion that really wears us out, I think it's so much easier to reach for that substance, like that lever, like that button to push to go, okay, this is now my downshift, your Mm -hmm. word for it. So the power of getting more peace in your life. Can you talk more about what that's done for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's amazing to me is when I was drinking, I felt like I couldn't cope with my life. I literally was like the next thing that is put on my plate from my boss or my husband or what my kids need 
if they get an ear infection or a fever, I get that call from daycare. It would feel like it would break me. You know what I mean? Like there was no give. And once I stopped drinking, and it does take two or three weeks of being really tired and irritable and all that stuff. But after that, you feel really good. I was able to do my job, to be with my kids, to get my stuff done. Same schedule, nothing in my life changed, except for it was 60% easier. It just was. I mean, I had a big job. I was director of digital marketing at a Fortune 500 company. And even with that, with two kids, my daughter was 22 months when I stopped drinking. My son was eight. Um, I felt so much more ease and peace in my life. And a year later, I was able to go back to full-time coaching school on nights and weekends while still having my job and my kids, like just the amount of better sleep, not kind of pissing away two to three hours a night um, where I might've been doing things, but was totally unproductive, not dragging all day, not having my nervous system shot. Once your dopamine resets, you're overall happier and more, more content every day. And so it was an amazing shift you know, once I stopped drinking and you still have life and you still have adulting and, you know, you're a lot of us drink to self-medicate and you got to deal with some of that afterwards, but at least you can deal with it. You're not just living in this place of overwhelm. So less overwhelm. And for highly sensitive people, that tends to be up there in the top five, if not number one of the struggle is overwhelm. Yeah. You know, that, that joke of like alcohol is, how does it go? It's like the problem and the answer mm-hmm. to all, to all life's problems. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, the overwhelm that that creates and then the overwhelm that that takes away and the overwhelm that that keeps you in the cycle of. So that's what the piece has brought to you is sort of more bandwidth. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh God, so much more bandwidth, so much more time, so much more energy, so much more rest. All right. So let me ask you the questions that I think my listeners would want to ask you. Do you find yourself wanting to drink? I find myself occasionally looking at someone else having a big glass of red at the table next to me and saying, yeah, that looks good. I used to love that. But the trade-off to me is not worth it. I had a period of time without alcohol. I was I went four months not drinking because I was really worried that it was shooting my mental health and I was stressed and I was worried it was a problem for me. And then I got pregnant. So I had a full year not drinking. And then once my daughter was born, I was like, okay, I'm going to have a couple drinks on a date night every once in a while. Fairly quickly, it went back to a bottle. Mm. And it took me 22 months to pull myself out of it to get another stretch of sobriety, which is now seven years. What I noticed was after a period of not drinking, you know too much, every hangover, every worry about your mental health, every 3 a.m. wake up, every snapping at your kid or your spouse, every time you're trying to have a conversation at dinner, but you're also kind of trying to catch the waitress's eye so you can order your third glass before it gets awkward, before everybody else is ready for the check you know it's the alcohol. 
And so the second time I stopped drinking, I was like, I I stopped again because I got to the place of like, I can't feel this way anymore. This is not going anywhere good. Now I know I don't want to go back there. Now I know it isn't situational or my boss or my husband needs to help. I know it's the substance. And so when I was drinking, it was lighting up my brain, you know, party on my living room couch on a Tuesday night for like two hours every day for 22 hours of every single day. It was making my life worse. The hangovers, the sleep, the stress, the operating in half power, the craving, the trying to moderate or stop, the giving in. So look at that trade-off, two to 22, like it's a horrible ROI. And so now I look at a glass of wine and I'm like, occasionally, yeah, that looks good, but I don't drink anymore and it's not worth it to me. Awesome. Awesome. Because I I think that's really people's big fear is that they're kind of always going to feel like an intensity of craving. And like, it's this big monkey you have to kind of fight constantly. The whole one day at a time, right? Like, yeah, like it's going to be hard forever. And yeah, like I have no hard time not drinking. Me neither. I mean, it's just, and honestly, like I always think with the women I work with who are earlier in sobriety, but out of that first month, when they want to have a drink, my first question is, are you hungry? Because low blood sugar, being hungry, huge trigger. But secondly, I'm like, why? What is the emotion you want to meet by drinking? Is it that you are tired or bored or want to heighten the one fun time you have this month Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you can solve for that. Like if you're Mm -hmm. tired, go take a nap. If you're overwhelmed, ask for support or take stuff off your list Mm -hmm. or push out deadlines. Like, you know, if you want to have an even better time, add something to what you're doing or ask yourself what you're missing. But Drinking is the easy button, but it's really an anchor on your life. Well said. How preoccupied were you with alcohol? Like, were you thinking about it kind of all day, all the time? Oh, God, yes. I mean, I would wake up in the morning and literally the first thought that would cross my mind, and this is after the 3 a.m. wake-ups when they happen, 3 a.m., I was like, oh, my God. I have to sleep. How am I going to handle today if I don't get back to sleep? You know, all that stuff. Why did I do that? You know, why did I have that extra glass of wine? You know, what's my husband going to say in the morning? That was 3 a.m. When I got up in the morning, my initial thought was, what the fuck is wrong with me? Get your shit together. So shaming yourself. Like literally every single day. And I would put on eyeliner and look at my bloodshot eyes. I would not meet my husband's eyes. I'd be very standoffish because I'd be not wanting to hear, you know, you'd be like, so how are you feeling? You know, like kind of thing. And this is weekdays too. Or I would, um, and then I would tell myself, okay, I need to not drink that much or um, I need to take a break or, oh my God, I'm so out of shape because I skipped my workout because I drank, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, Z. And then by three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, I'd be rationalizing that everyone drinks like I do. It's no big deal. I can just have one, you know, I'd be driving home from daycare 
or two daycare after a long day at work where I had to finish two more emails, you know, kind of late and really anxious at traffic because I was trying to figure out if I had enough time to pick up a bottle of wine before the daycare closed. And I was honestly a great mom. I really was. I loved my kid, but it was just, how can I fit this in and keep this in my life? And do I have enough at home? And then, oh my God, why did I drink that much? Like it was pretty much 24 seven. I'm glad to have you share that because that preoccupation is another thing that very few people talk about out loud. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that you don't really even realize is going on until you're out of it. It's like this chatter in your brain. It is like a constant, constant, almost like an obsession Yeah, with it, but without the realization of, holy shit, I'm obsessing on this. I'm already overwhelmed in all these other aspects of my life. And I'm thinking everything through the lens of alcohol and how to do it. And then bad, bad shame on me because I did it. So. For those of you who are out there kind of contemplating your own relationship with alcohol, take that in for a minute. Imagine having a life where that's not wearing you down, Mm -hmm. where you're not on that kind of emotional thought roller coaster that is just zapping your energy and you're trying to cram in how to fit the alcohol into your life. You get to take that all away. Yeah. And you will not want it forever and you will feel so much better. And all your worries about will my friends want to hang out with me or will people think I have a problem or will I be able to network at work or will my husband be bored or will I not be able to relax at the end of the day or will parenting be harder? All of those, I promise you, I've worked with hundreds of women. They are unfounded. And the work you need to do is around your own thought process and some boundaries and your beliefs around alcohol, but that's good work. You know what I mean? Like that's emotional growth. That's personal development work that will serve you in every other area of your life. And you and all of us, like we all deserve that kind of season in our life to at least experience ourselves with that kind of freedom outside of a substance. Yeah. And you are allowed to evolve. I mean, I used to think about like my son was eight and I was, you know, drinking the way I was drinking and worried about and the, you know, constant chatter in my brain and, you know, falling asleep on the couch and not remembering shows. And I thought, okay, if this is me when he's eight, what will it be like in 10 years when he's 18? Like it doesn't get better. I mean, I, I knew that you don't start consuming less over time. And I was like, is he going to want to bring his friends home at 9 PM a decade from now when he's 18? And that scared me because I wondered what relationship we would have. He is 14. Now we have a fantastic relationship. He is really proud of me for not drinking. And I love that he doesn't see alcohol at the table every night. My husband still drinks, um, but nowhere near like I did. And he doesn't, he knows it's not necessary. And I also thought about that decade and I was like, 
what could I accomplish and achieve? And what kind of woman would I be if I wasn't navigating hangovers and getting fuzzy every evening? And, you know, in my first um, five months not drinking, I ran a 10K and I hadn't done that in five years. Like, I was just like almost in tears when I finished. And I was just like, I am now a person who does what I say I'm going to do. And that I like just had chills. I was just repeating that over and over to myself when I finished. I think that's the best high of all. Yeah. Is being able to see yourself and see the freedom of what you offered yourself, that clarity. Yeah. What an example of a healthy fear to let yourself contemplate that fear of what is this going to do to my relationship with my child? Yeah. I think it's a fear that a lot of people consciously ignore and move away from. And it's so real. It's so real because there are no time machines. Well, and just so you guys know, because I think it's really, really interesting. um, Gen Z and millennials drink significantly less than their parents and grandparents. The biggest drinkers are baby boomers followed by Gen X and millennial mothers. Like that's the progression. 28% of college students in the US right now don't drink, which is crazy. You know, there are all these studies that Gen X millennials are, they're concerned about their image. They want to achieve. They, um, are very focused on their health. They find binge drinking unattractive. I mean, so I have a lot of hope for the future. And I honestly think that like, if we're sad that we're not 25 year, years old anymore, like look at what the 25 year olds are doing now. Cause it isn't getting blotto, you know, all mm-hmm. the time, like we used to do, or at least like I used to do. I am very hopeful that talking about it more yeah is what's going to really change the dynamic i think people suffer in isolation as if they're the only one and especially when you're making the decision to kind of or at least starting to face the fact that alcohol may not be serving you and you want to change that often you're surrounded by a lot of people who don't want to look at it that way and so i think that adds to the isolation yeah quality of it and so the more people like you that are out there talking about this more, being real about it is going to help people really feel unisolated, if that's a word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And feel, have it normalized. Like even just us talking about motherhood and, and the real true struggle there, no matter how much you love your kids and would die for them, there's the truth of how hard it is and how much sacrifice really is involved. And that's not a neutral event to have that type of sacrifice. So the more that that gets talked about and normalized, the more that I think people will have an easier, even when it's hard, an easier time opening up to a possibility. And the more we get away from this sort of hard line alcoholic or I'm fine and really work within that gray area of it's a toxic substance, any amount. And deciding to remove alcohol as a health choice. I mean, when you think about the number of people who are like, oh my gosh, I need to get gluten out of my life, like, Mm -hmm. you know, or sugar or whatever. That's all great. But removing alcohol does not have to have any bearing on your morality or the type of person you are or Mm -hmm. anything. It literally is a substance that's not required in your life. And you can just decide not to have it. And by the way, 
there are incredible non-alcoholic beverages right now. The the non-alcoholic beer and wine and spirits market market is booming. So, you know, you can still have the same taste, the same look, just without alcohol and Mm -hmm. just without the negative effects that it does to your body. And that's really what this is about, the empowerment of taking care of yourself and truly embodying what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for talking about this too. Thank you for bringing me on. You're so welcome. I'm happy to bring you on again. Like this is a major, major, major issue, no matter how much the world wants to act like it's not, it really is. And me being a trauma therapist, kids are affected. Even with the best of intentions, they are affected. Even with the best parenting, they are affected because it, it glazes you over. Yeah. And on some level, your kid knows that when you're glazed over with them and there's no beating around the bush about that not being a real issue, particularly this is a highly sensitive audience. You have highly sensitive kids. They're picking up on all of that. And that's a big part of them starting their own people pleasing journey is learning how to manage kind of if, if mommy is a little strange or not, is she slurry, you know, is she stumbly? Is she snappy or is she happy? Like that's really where a lot of that comes from. And so thank you for being brave enough to really own it and talk about it trying to think if there's anything else I want to add before we wrap. I can add that I lost a lot of friends in my journey of drinking less. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you did it? I was in my thirties. Okay. I was in my, I was already starting to drink less and, and really realizing like, I don't want this for my lifestyle, but I was still in it for a while, like in the pre-contemplation of changing. And I was in a, a relationship with somebody that they wouldn't say that they have a problem with alcohol, but I was. Um, and, that, and I would say that that was a big part of us not being compatible and not being able to, to work through that. And I'm happy that that relationship ended now. I'm in a very good relationship now. But it, it really was, I think, 35 that I really like hit my first year of, I'm just not going to drink. Yeah. I'm just not going to. And the benefit that I got from it was astronomical. It was not just in what getting the substance out of my system did, but with the challenge of me seeing myself be different with something. Yeah. There's, yeah. There is such a, I don't know if it's right or wrong to use the word high, but there's such a high, there's such a natural life high about seeing yourself change something about yourself. Yeah. And we're such habitual creatures that to change mm-hmm. something that's hard to change yeah. is such a pride point. There's such yeah. a surge of, if I can do this, you can wow, do what else can yeah. I do? And few yeah. things in life are that rich or that yeah. empowering or that, I don't know, it, it's a flavor. It's a spice of life that yeah. that it gave me. Um, yeah. It helped me date better. You know, like I, I dated without being a big drinker and that was a very different way to date and to partner. And I think that did play a big part in me finding a partner that is sort of my speed and and really fits me. Um, And what I can say to those of you who are like, yeah, I know I will lose the friends. I'm not going to be like Casey, whoever everybody's like, we'll still party with you sober. What I can say is it was right for me to lose those friends because Mm -hmm. that's not real friendship. That's not real connection. That's connecting over the substance. Yeah. And I think that is an underlying fear that 
I can admit, I didn't consciously know that I had at the time. But looking back, I can very much know that I had that fear of, well, if I change this and people go away and they don't want me anymore, or they don't think I'm fun, or they don't like me, or they think I'm boring, then that means that they kind of never really were my friend. And I, yeah. and I think for me and a lot of people, pushing that potentially painful awareness and grief and loss away kept me drinking for years when maybe without that element or that dynamic to it, I might've given it up earlier of my own volition. Yeah. And to have that fear proven, I think that's the thing we push against. But once it was proven to me, it was like a big exhale mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a refresh. And it clarified for me who I wanted to invest in. Yeah. And who I wanted investing in me. And it gave me higher quality, I think, respect of myself and higher quality connections. And I think of Johan Hari's works on addiction. And I know his second book about addiction, I haven't gotten to it yet, um, is basically that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And, And so the more connection I felt to myself, the more I trusted and just know, like I know my first name, that I'll never, ever, ever have that kind of relationship with alcohol ever again. Yeah. I'm still friends with lots of the people I were bef- was before, almost all of them. And I, I did party with them quite a bit. I added so many friends when I stopped drinking, which was crazy. Like when I looked at, you know, this is dating me. I quit seven years ago. My Facebook friends for that year, I almost doubled them. And they were real friendships. They were online sometimes. They were in person. It opened me up to this whole new universe of people. It supplemented the friends I had. When you get older, it's kind of hard to add friends. Um, What I did, obviously, with my drinking friends changed, right? I wasn't going out to the bar with them and staying up till 2 in the morning. Um, We went for walks instead of and breakfast, you know, going to brunch. We did the, you know, wanderlust triathlon together. We we did other things, but it was it was good. And I think that if your friends are real friends, they'll respect the choice. It's like if you decide to run a marathon, your group of girlfriends don't have to do that too. But they might come cheer you on at the end, or they might pick you up if you have to run 12 miles and don't want to do a loop, like, you know, or they might understand if you go to bed early before a big training day, you know? I think it depends on anybody's support system, sort of maturity level and healthiness inside of them. I know I was surrounded by a lot of people that just didn't have it in them to be able to do that. Cause it held me changing my behavior held up too much of a mirror. Yeah. I and hear they, that. Yeah. And they did not want to then, or I think now yeah, address that in any way. And so what I want to say to listeners who suspect that that might be the circumstance that they're in, if they change their relationship with drinking, what I want you to know and hold on to there is that what I had to hold on to is that as much as that hurt, It wasn't about me. Mm -hmm. It was about their own relationship with alcohol and that they really couldn't relate to me anymore because of me changing. And I had to let that be okay and learn how to not take that 
personally, even when it feels like the most personal thing. Yeah. And in those moments, I was able, well, it's going to make me cry. I was able to show up as my own friend. And in my drinking days, the sad, sad truth is that I really didn't know how to do that as well. And I think getting alcohol out of the way creates this spaciousness for us to really start showing up as her, as our own best support, as our own friend, because we're the only ones that can take the very best care of ourselves. Yeah. And there, there's, there's no gray area in the fact that alcohol is not a healthy coping strategy for us. It's not, no matter how normalized it is, it's not, it's a poison for our bodies. It's a poison for our mental health. Mm-hmm. And so the more that you step away from that, the more that you're embodying such a deep, honest core kind of taking care of yourself and the alcohol. It's such a, it's like putting a bandaid over a gunshot wound. Like, yeah, yeah it's something. It's something that I guess that bandaid's better <laughs> than nothing. But at the end of the day, that's not what's going to clean it out. That's not what's going to help it heal. That, that's not what's going to help that part of you be okay. And, and it's so the same with our emotional experience and our, and our journey. Yeah. And for, for people who have an interest in self-development and growth work, I wish we could all sort of magically just accept that because we're all drawn to that self-development, we'll find each other. That fear of loneliness or that fear of loss or change, there's 8 billion people on the planet. Like You're going to be able to find your people. And the alcohol gremlins that reside inside of us, they love that fear. So we don't have to let that fear keep feeding those gremlins that want to drink. We can reach into our wise woman self and support the fact that there are a lot of healthy people out there and there are people trying to figure out how to live kind of freer with more peace and more clarity and more goodness for themselves and their families. And we are right to evolve and grow. And we shed people sometimes like snakes shed skin. And that's not wrong. We're supposed to evolve. Some people will stay with us kind of for the long haul, but not everybody is meant for the long haul. And that's okay too. Yeah. I don't have anything to add. That was just perfect. Thank you so much, Casey, really, for all that you do. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing yourself so vulnerably and genuinely. Thank you for being a light in the world. Oh, it's been my pleasure. To find out more about Casey, to look into working with her and listening to her podcast, Hello Someday, find out more about Casey at hellosomedaycoaching.com. I'm an emotional badass. Casey is an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love. And I'll see you right here next time. Bye-bye.